Well, right up front, I'm going to tell you that I really miss my pastor. And uh, he's, uh, I just want to share this with you. I have the opportunity of visiting a lot of churches and um, hearing a lot of pastors within our denomination and other denominations as well. And if you don't know it by now, I just want to make sure you do know it, that we have one of the most gifted teachers that uh, one could sit under. Matt is an excellent teacher, and uh, Matt is a good pastor. And uh, let's make sure he, he hears that from us when he gets back. Um, however, whatever way you find to express that, <clears throat> if it's just to pray for him, that in itself is, a, I think, a significant gift that you could give him. To support him and the ministry of he and his family, Meredith, that they render for this church is exceptional, and I invite you to do that. Let's pray together before we uh, take some time just to look at God's word. Let's pray. We are grateful, Father, for what we have here as a group of people who have come together to honor you, please you, worship you. We're grateful for this experience that is ours because of the precious fellowship that's guaranteed in the name of Christ Jesus. We're grateful that you would give us the time to do the best we can to express our love for you and to express our love for one another. Lord, as we look to your scriptures this morning and consider a passage that speaks of who you are and what you're all about, I pray that in your marvelous and miraculous way, the word actually becomes a part of us and it'll be lived out in our lives as we want to be obedient to you because we demonstrate our love to you by keeping your commandments. So may we love you richly this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read a passage of Scripture to you that... um, in many ways, it's just kind of caught my attention. In the last few weeks, um, I was at a retreat with a group of pastors, and, and we took some time just to look at this particular uh, section of um, God's Word and just began in a conversation talk about what it was saying to us and what it might mean to us, and particularly what it would be that we would want to share with others. And uh, not knowing that I was going to be preaching anytime soon, I still took the notes feverishly, believing that someday it could be a sermon. So a lot of the stuff that I'm sharing this morning is uh, some thoughts that came out of that discussion, as well as some reading that uh, I have done since, because this, this passage is just beautiful. It's really a beautiful story. It's found in the Gospel of Mark, and it's chapter 14, and it's verses 3 through 9. And I'd like to read it to you. And you can follow along if you like. Mark 14, 3 through 9. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, a pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. 
But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the, in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. It was several years ago, um, one Easter, uh, when I was pastoring at the Village Church in Dowling Park, Florida. It was the, actually it was the Sunday after Easter, and I, I don't remember so much about the sermon itself. I just remember the title, and and the title was simply "It's Still Easter." And I I was so you know I guess inspired, excited charged, um, filled, motivated by the celebration that we had just the week before, it, it thought, I, my thoughts were, why should we let it go? And, uh, and I even went to the point that while you go outside and on the marquee, you put the name of your sermon each week, I left it up there for about a month and a half, two months. People probably thought I was preaching the same sermon every week, but I just wanted people to remember, it's still Easter. And I think in many ways that some of the things that Matt has been saying recently, and particularly during the week of uh, our, our celebration just this past week, that he wants us to continue to remember the significance of Easter, that the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is foundational to our faith. And, and matter of fact... It's, it is the, the very essence of our message as a church, as believers in Christ. This, this event was not only life-changing for you and me as we came to know Christ as our Savior, it was the life-changing event in all of history. The birth of Christ is exceptional, no doubt about it. And the crucifixion is phenomenal and what was accomplished on the cross but the resurrection is the essence of who he is and, and the one who possesses the very power of God and the, and the culmination of, of all that was said about him. And the last chapter of his prophecies uh, certainly point to him coming again. But I, I think, I don't think it's intentional. I think it's just our nature that as we we wrap up and pack away the things that are synonymous with our Easter festivities, our Easter celebration, ready to move on to the, the, the next um, holy holiday. <laughs> it's like we're waiting to see what's next. But we should never let go of what has been. And that is the, resur- the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I, I just encourage you to keep that in mind. And, and maybe as you go from this place, if nothing else, just remember, it's still Easter. Don't let that escape you. Day after day after day, our lives should be shaped by our celebration of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ.
I want to take this, this passage of Scripture and just look at some of the verses uh, in a singular format so we can get kind of an understanding of the unfolding of this story. And it, it, it actually is, is something that occurred within just days of, of what unfolded during his week of passion. Uh, matter of fact, one of the Gospels refers to it as just two days away from Passover that this took place. And so in some ways, we're still talking about Easter, if you'll let me do that. Because I think in this, in this particular uh, text, there were some things that were done that we too should be doing in our lives as well. But let's just begin with verse 3 and kind of, kind of set the stage here. It reads, And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, This, this uh, story is captured uh, in some degree by all four Gospels, but more in particular by Mark and by Matthew and John. And by reading those parallel texts, we, we kind of can fill in the blanks of what this all means as to why he was there and what was going on. And, and first off, in the house at Bethany, this is just outside Jerusalem. And so this, again, puts him in the proximity of the cross itself. And, and the fact that he's in the house of Simon the leper, um, we, we can begin to recognize that Simon wanted to have a feast and he wanted to invite Jesus. Now, truly, if he was a leper, he couldn't do that because he would have to claim himself to be unclean and, and ostracized from the whole community until he could be recognized as clean by the priest. But it can also be a, a reference to something that was a part of his life at one time, when he was a leper. And it is supposed that Jesus actually healed Simon. And so this could have been maybe the celebration of that, that eventful time in his life when Jesus healed him of leprosy. This, this passage also has a parallel um, likeness to John's description as to believing that Lazarus could have been there. Lazarus, who was just raised from the dead... I mean, you, you've got some pretty prominent people here in this, this, uh, on this guest list. And we also recognize, again, from the Gospel of John, that Mary and Martha would have been there. Martha was serving. And so we also understand that there could have been a host of others and that this room packed for this celebration of what Christ is doing, has done, will do. And a number of people had gathered And he was reclining at the table, and a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it out over his head. I was going to bring you an alabaster flask. We have one, and it's it's a beautiful stone that this this flask would have been carved out of, Uh, but I couldn't figure out how you all could get your hands on it and, and feel it and and maybe have an appreciation for this, this vessel that was uh, the container for this beautiful fragrance, nard. It, it was, a, it was an, an ointment or a perfume that was made from a plant in India. And uh, it was very, very expensive. Uh, matter of fact, um, it's believed, if you read down further in the text, you recognize it was worth 300 denarii which translates to about a full year's wages for the people at that time. So it could have been a family heirloom. It could have been just a treasure that, uh, that Mary herself came to possess. And I say Mary 
Because, again, the Gospel of John refers to Mary as the one who broke this flask and, and poured the ointment on Jesus. And it was an, it was an extravagant demonstration of, of her fondness of, of Christ because in, in the Gospel of Mark, you read that the fact that she poured the ointment on his head. But in the Gospel of John, you also see that his feet were anointed and, and she even wiped her feet with her hair and and begin to appreciate the, 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 the extravagant expression of her love here. It wasn't just the cost of the perfume. For this woman to let down her hair in public was in many ways to take on even the shame, the humiliation before others. This was not something that was done typically at all. It was a, it was a tremendous demonstration of humility. And she chose to do this. Also, there's just a side, a side note here, and I kind of appreciate it. I was reading in one commentary that um, another appreciation for this gift may not have been expressed openly, but everybody in the room certainly was thankful for it. Because we're talking about the Middle East, and where people don't practice personal hygiene like you and I do, and it's full of people, and you can imagine some of the other odors that might have been in the room. And so to not, not just mask, but to actually... Replace what might in any degree be offensive by this fragrance would certainly be appreciated by everybody that was present. But there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? And they scolded her. In one of the Gospels, it says, in, in Mark it says, and they said to themselves. In one of the Gospels, it says, the disciples that's alarming. And that was in Matthew. And in John's gospel, yeah, he, he doesn't waste any words. He points out who the culprit is that expresses this particular uh, concern. And that was Judas himself. Matter of fact, I'll read it to you so you can get kind of a flavor of some of the dynamics going on in, in, this, in this room around the table from the Gospel of John, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Do you get a sense of just the ugliness that was even in the room? In the presence of Christ. Not just offensive odors, but offensive behavior, ruthless behavior. Judas wasn't concerned about the poor. Judas' concern was what might be his cut, as the money would have been put in his pouch. Just a comment here, this scold, and then we read, they scolded her. The original language, it suggests that they snorted at her like a beast. And again, just imagine that. How, how that was so devastating for Mary to just imagine that those around her were so critical and mean. And how they responded to her gift, her lavish gift upon Christ. Notice something here too. 
that the value placed on her act of worship, her act of love, was measured by those present in a quantitative manner. What's it worth? Or what's it going to do for anybody? Or maybe what are we going to get out of it? And I think so often we are quick to judge what someone might do in terms of the quantitative value instead of maybe even the heart that's behind it. No one got anything out of it except Jesus. And Jesus came to her defense. He said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. This was a clear reference to his crucifixion. It's interesting Time and time again, Jesus would remind his disciples of what was ahead, the pending arrest and crucifixion. It's, it's like they didn't get it. Somehow they missed it. And it was Mary who seemed to kind of have an understanding of what was going on. This thing with the poor, Jesus wasn't speaking down to the poor. He he wasn't excluding that as something less important. Jesus was simply saying, you are obligated as disciples to continue in this service, to minister to those who are the least of you, those who don't have the poor. But the time is passing, and it will come when you will not have the opportunity to minister to me. She had done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Repeatedly, Jesus reminded his disciples, and they casually kind of put it to side. Matter of fact, if you read this account in the book of Matthew, just before, it seems, (laughs) that they sat down to the table, this is what Jesus says to them, Matthew 26, 2. You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. The concept of a suffering Messiah escaped them. It did not connect. It made no sense. It didn't fit their vocabulary. It didn't didn't somehow embrace their idea of the Messiah. They were just simply out of it in terms of the know of what Jesus was all about at this time. But Mary had a sense, it seems. And I wonder, and I just wonder, I have, no, I have no biblical reference to this except the fact that Mary knew something was up. Because it is recorded in the scriptures that the word was already out. That not only was Jesus on the hit list, so was Lazarus. And so again, with that electricity in the room of where your, your beloved Savior, your beloved Lord is there, and even your own brother, their lives are at risk. I believe she realized that the tragedy was at hand and the thought could have been, I may never have another opportunity like this one. 
Two phrases that I just want you to hold on to from this passage of Scripture and take with you because I think these are the things that tell us what we are to do as as we take something from the the lesson this morning. And those are found in verses 6 and 8. And listen to these words of Christ himself. She has done a beautiful thing to me. And verse 8, she has done what she could. Those are beautiful, sweet, powerful words. She has done a beautiful thing to me. She has done what she could. In one of the commentaries that I was reading on this text, I ran across these words, and I think they're applicable to these two phrases. She has done something beautiful to me, and she has done what she could. Considering the time frame that they were working in and and Mary being sensitive to maybe what her response should be. Listen to the words of um, the uh, commentary preaching the word. Among the tragedies of life are the times we are moved to do something fine or noble and we do not do it. Instead, we yield to the common sense or the busyness of life. We ignore the impulses to write a letter of appreciation or the prompting to tell someone we love them or the urge to give to a special need. Thus, the possibility of a thing of beauty is gone forever. How many opportunities have we had in our lives? Or maybe, maybe back up. How many promptings have we had even from the Holy Spirit in our lives that we ought to, and we don't, whatever it might be. And the point is that once that opportunity passes, it may never be regained. It may never be ours again to claim. It could be lost forever. All Jesus was asking of his disciples and all he asks of us today is to love him. That's all he asks of us, to love him. It is a beautiful thing. We do when we love Jesus. And we demonstrate our love to him by the way, and this goes with the great commandment and the great commission, by the way we love one another. Remember the words of Christ when, again, he was speaking of those those last days that were to come before his return, and he used the parable of the king, and, um, and the king was talking about those who should receive his reward. It was, it's found in the Gospel of Matthew uh, 25. Let me read it to you. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invited you in or needing clothes and clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison and went to visit you? And the king will reply, 
I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for the one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. Something beautiful. Doing something, maybe all, that we could, however large or small it may be. Like Mary, we are to do beautiful things as we minister to the least of these. We are to do what we can. When I looked at this passage of Scripture the first time, the thing that I just latched on to was what I believe was Mary's unrestricted, uninhibited, unashamed, unleashed, unlimited exercise of worship. She had her eyes on Christ. Everything about her was on and to Christ. It didn't make any difference what anyone was, snak- what anyone was snorting in the room and, uh, and all the side comments or anything like that at all. Her eyes were on Christ. Mary did what Paul instructs us to do in Romans 12.1, to give of ourselves as a living sacrifice, which is a holy and acceptable gift of service, which fulfills our spiritual worship. In other words, everything that we do should be as an act of worship, a tribute to Christ. Worship isn't confined to a place or a time. Worship is defined in, in terms of where we are in relationship to Christ. The proximity of his life as it's entangled or engaged with ours. Worship finds its true definition as we are about trying to define what this relationship means to us. As, as maybe as simple as two coins in the offering by a widow or a woman who breaks this, this flask of expensive perfume and lavishly and extravagantly pours it out before the Lord. It isn't the size of the gift. It's the size of the heart for Christ. That's what's behind our worship. And that heart for Christ should be something that's evident beyond the one and a half hours that we spend Sunday morning here. It should be evident in the world in which we work and live and play. People should know that our lives are dedicated to the worship and the honor and praise of Jesus. And I say this because kind of like it's kind of like uh, kind of like going back to the. Um, the people who scratched her head and, and asked the king, when did we do any of these nice things for you, Lord? <laughs> and they don't have any recollection of it. It's just a natural response. And, and maybe no one will notice it even. Or maybe some will and be critical of it. But what is important, it will not go unnoticed by Jesus as it's done to him and for him as our spiritual worship, whatever it might be. It's interesting that Jesus concludes this passage by saying, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. 
We don't have to worry about what people remember about us or what we did or what might be read at our funerals as a part of our epitaph. The one that's going to remember and the one that truly counts is the one that remembered this woman, Mary. And all she did was something beautiful. She simply did what she could. And I believe we are all in a position to do both those things. Something beautiful. Something we all can do. Amen.